We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The built environment is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Take the use of concrete for example. After water, concrete is the most widely used substance on Earth, and when all of its stages of production are rolled together, it's responsible for between 4-8% to of the world's CO2 emissions. Some studies show that construction is even responsible for 23% of air pollution, 40% of drinking water pollution, and 50% of landfill wastes. We've known for a long time about these impacts and that the way architects design directly affects how much of an impact buildings have on the environment. Until strict regulations are implemented, individual architects have to choose if their designs will place the environment at the forefront of their design considerations. I'm Daniel Moore and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Caroline Pidcock, Jenny Edwards and Joe Best about how architects are designing differently in the age of climate change. In 1992, Caroline Pidcock set up her architecture practice in Sydney while Australia was in a recession. After establishing that she wanted to work on sustainable projects and with clients who care about the environment, she clarified her firm's sustainability mission and also started working at the University of Newcastle, greening up their curriculum. The projects that her firm first produced focused on simple passive design strategies. Since then, her practice has evolved beyond sustainable design towards regenerative design that aims for buildings to give back to the environment. Caroline, thanks for joining us. You've been in the sustainable design game a long time now. How has your practice changed over time and how has that affected your projects? So in 2018, I transformed my practice from being me and people in an office doing projects to just me working from home and being more strategic in the advice that I offer. So two years ago, I made that um, transformation. So one of the last projects I was doing in the office was this house in Mossman for um, a wonderful client who I had previously helped renovate an apartment block, a small apartment block that she owned. And, you know, what she had realised, she she's in her... Um, I'd say she's sort of roughly about 60. She realised that going forward, the house she wanted to live in, she she was living in this very um, imposing, impressive sandstone house in Mossman with views of the harbour. And it was a nightmare to live in. It was over several levels. It was really un- not necessarily very comfortable in winter. It was um, super expensive to run from electricity and water and it was down a hill and so you didn't really walk anywhere and so she had um that they owned this house that uh, her mother-in-law was living in that was on level access to the shops a little a little um federation house that was in not great repair no views of the water but some lovely trees around and so her brief was to create a house that she could live in and she and her husband could live in going forward no matter what happened to them. So we needed it to be, it's not fully accessible, you know, it's not 100% in DDA accessible, but it is fully accessible really. And then and then also designed, so there's an upstairs section that 
is accessible by stairs, but it it could be used by a carer in the future, so you don't have to come into the house oh, to go up there. Um, or they've got child, grown-up children and they can come and stay very easily without sort of disturbing um, them downstairs. So it was, it, there was a really great brief about the livability of it. There was a great brief about... It was about creating a beautiful garden that this house could then connect to, not necessarily views, not views of water, but just views and connection to garden and to really work a house around that sort of thing and to be really sustainable. So um, I worked with a builder who I've been working with very closely on a number of projects and we designed it to be virtually passive house you know, it, it it he's done a blower door test, and it achieved one point three air changes per hour, rather than not zero point six, but you know, a whole lot better than the twenty or thirty that the average Australian house achieves. And also, what we did was when we pulled down the existing house, we salvaged all the bricks and all the hardwood timber framing, and have reused all of that. Um, and and we've even exposed we we're not we haven't rendered those bricks it's kind of like trying to do a minimal material thing that still is beautiful so sometimes we've painted the bricks but other times we've just left them exposed so you can see them and the house in 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 the middle between christmas and new year the builder said he went there on one of those 40 degree days the house was totally locked up and it was about 26 degrees inside you know with no cooling Right, so back in 1992, there was probably more emphasis on passive design. Uh, you were recently telling me about a project that you did in Taree where you've taken on the Living Building Challenge. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you've had to go through on this epic project? This has been the longest project I've ever worked on. It started in the office in 2009 and it started with us doing a pro bono master plan for this the client's first steps count child and community centre and it's about creating a one-stop shop for families experiencing difficulty a place where they can go to and all the people who they need help from will go to that place and help them there because often um, people can't can't or won't go to a myriad of different consultants in different places they just physically can't get there and and it sort of drops through you know Things don't happen that should. So we start. We started off with a pro bono master plan and then our clients went and found some funding and the Vincent Fairfax Foundation came to the party and agreed to fund the consultants to do a development application, to develop the design into a development application and then to put $1 million towards the construction of a building when the rest of the money was raised. So we then started... That took a little while to get that funding and then once we got it... It was probably by then, um, 2012, and I found the Living Building Challenge over in um, Portland, and I came back and I said to the clients, because um, we just we we'd got the funding by then and we were developing the design, and I said, "Would you like to consider the Living Building Challenge?" And they said, "What is it?" And I said, "Well, it's it's a framework that suggests that every act of development should be positive and regenerative." not less bad, but actually good. And they just looked at me and they said, but that's exactly what we're trying to do in our program of the building. We would love to do this. So I said, well, it is called a challenge for a reason because it's challenging. And they said, but that's great, let's go for it. 
And so we developed up the design to be living building challenge ready, if you like. I mean, we couldn't get on board the whole team, but we did that for the development application. And then that went in and for various really silly reasons, um, it took a long time to get that DA through, but we got it through. So then we had to get the money for the building. And the buildings, you know, we needed to raise about $5 million. We had $1 million, so we needed another four and a half. And the New South Wales government a couple of years ago committed $2.5 million to it. And so with that $3.5 million, we decided, well, let's get going with it and we'll find the one and a half on the way. And this was then coinciding with when I was transitioning out of being project-based and into more strategic. And so mm-hmm. I suggested that I replace myself as architect and become the sustainability guide. And I was so fortunate that Austin McFarland, their architects who are based in a town near Taree as well as Sydney, Wingham, which is the town, they were initially when I asked them, they weren't available. And then a couple of months later, they were available and they've come on board and they are so great. It's such a joy to work with them. Uh, We also had to find a um, better engineer, uh, not a better engineer, there was a local engineer who was very good, but he was in retiring and his son was taking it on and we needed to get someone who was much, his son wasn't actually a registered engineer, we needed to get someone else and I found um, Damien from uh, Candelever Constructions here in Sydney who had just found out about Living Building Challenge and just was totally in love with it. And so he came on board and then we had to, we built the team, we had to get a, um, I said that the only way we're going to get this done properly is if we get a builder on board early and they become part of the team. Because it was government money, we had to do some sort of tender situation. So we went out Mm -hmm. for an expression of interest for early contractor appointment and Mm -hmm. we found, with the assistance of the University of Newcastle, um, their construction management department has been so engaged in this project with us they're helping us enormously on the materials and they also helped us put together some a a list of five builders that could tender out of that only two did and out of that we ended up with um walter duber from w and g duber builders and they are fantastic and walter has been an unbelievably essential part of this and then we got a hydraulic consultant CJ Arms who has worked on Brickworks project down in Melbourne which is Living Building Challenge um, it's going for the Living Building Challenge certification and um, Blue Green Engineering to help on the electrical and mechanical and uh, David Duncan from X Aspect and now Sydney Design Collective to do the landscaping. Wow that's really exciting can you um uh, elaborate a little bit on what it takes to actually be living building challenge certified well a whole lot of things you've got to create more energy than you use in a year you've got to capture and naturally treat all your own water on site and put it into the flow the natural flows of the system you've got to have materials that have no toxic chemicals in it that are sourced mainly locally and have minimal waste through both design and on in construction you've got to have um a building that all people can easily access it's got to be absolutely inspired and um informed by biophilic design which is about connecting people in meaningful and multi-sensory ways with nature regularly and all the time there's so many 
things about it that are really beautiful and and it's got to look beautiful <laughs> it's one of the only sustainability frameworks i know that understands the importance of beauty to inspire people to care for the building and look after it which is one of the most important things for enabling it to last a longer time <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like a lot of other rating systems primarily have an emphasis on how the building is going to perform and it's really easy to measure those things to see how well it was actually implemented. But the Living Building Challenge certification process also allows for social sustainability to see how socially resilient the building is. That must be really hard to actually implement with some sort of certainty. Well, it's a really interesting, I mean, so the social aspect of our brief is is high, you know, that's what it's all about. So that part of it was actually not hard to do. But added on to that, there's, um, you know, the builder is actively going to engage um, Indigenous apprentices to help um, build the place. Um, the, the social resilience, I think uh, the, the standard has developed to say that a really sustainable building needs to be able to survive no matter what what comes at us and as we're getting bigger cyclones and floods and droughts we've got to design buildings that can survive even through that so that's why you've got to create 105 percent of your energy use so that if there is an event you've got a battery with storage enough to make that building operate at a very basic level for two weeks of power and water so it's really, it, it does make you think that, and, you know, we've had the summer from hell, which just goes to, and now we're going through this COVID thing. And I think all of this is highlighting to me that resilience and uh, the ability to survive no matter what comes at you is so critical for architects to understand and to incorporate into their work. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important thing to remember that anyone can implement regenerative design into their projects. Uh, they just have to make the choice. So for any architects or students of architects or graduates who are listening at home, uh, what message would you like to give them about regenerative design? Well, one of the many aspects of regenerative design that really impacted me and the way I'm thinking is the idea that we shouldn't be going to a project and trying to find problems to solve because when you're solving problems you're trying you're almost isolating things into their own little units and and it's a bit of a downward negative energy thing when you go into a project what you should be doing is really trying to deeply understand the systems that are at play in that project the place and the ecology the people the the flora and fauna and look for the potential of realising how they can all co-evolve and, and benefit from that project and what that proje how that project might change to enable that to happen so that the best potential can be realised through your work. That's wonderful, Caroline. Thank you so much for being involved in the podcast. We look forward to seeing how the Tari project and all of your other projects finish up in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Daniel, and I think it's fantastic that you're doing this, so thank you. Oh, wow. Thanks again. Cheers. There are a lot of architecture firms in Australia that focus on energy-efficient design, but there are very few firms that focus on architecture science. 
Jenny Edwards is a scientist who integrates her scientific approach to building design in Canberra. Lighthouse Architecture and Science is where Jenny has a team of scientists and architects working together to thermally model their work to maximise the efficiency of their designs well before they start construction. Jenny has taken advantage of this process on two of her own projects as well. One was an extension to an existing house, as well as her new house, which was a new build. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Uh, working on your own project must come with its own challenges, but what did you have to allow for when you were designing for your homes in Canberra's climate? Um, yeah, Canberra is a really um, challenging climate. It's um, also, I say, the perfect climate for, for good solar passive design. You know, we get really cold winters. We can get consecutive minus eights, and we did the first year I moved into this house three winters ago, so it was a great test because I had no heating in my first year. Um, so minus eights, so we're dealing for that really intense cold. But of course, Canberra winters are really sunny. So we do have opportunity to soak up a lot of free heat if we design for it. The, the reverse of that is in summer, we also get incredibly hot. So we will also have consecutive days over 40 degrees. So we have to battle both ends of the spectrum. Um, and again, that's where solar passive design, the old classic solar passive design, which is about letting the sun in in winter, but ensuring that you shade from it in summer is really what it boils down to. It's not rocket science. Um, soak it up in winter, shade it in summer. So um, you'll, I'll probably bring it up again and again, windows, windows, windows. Um, a lot of new Australian houses have too much glass. You know, I, I always call it lazy architecture to have walls of glass. Um, it's really important um, to think about the glazing levels and your particular climate. Uh, but our, our houses typically have much lower glass levels than certainly typical architect design new homes um, and even project homes. But they do not feel dark. You know, they are light filled. They, they feel really spacious because we have very, very carefully positioned them. And to ensure that we still have that beautiful connection to outdoors and, and great natural light and great thermal management. So yeah, back to my own house. It's, um, I'm sitting in it right now, actually in the sun, and it's, it's on a tiny little block and it's actually north to the street. So, and the, um, it's only 13.5 metres wide by 30 metres long. So to make the most of the northern aspect, we had to do really clever design and full credit to the architects here. They are the ones who made the design work so beautifully, you know, cleverly stepping out the design to capture that northern light in the rear parts of the home. So it was a lovely, um, well, all of our projects are, but particularly with this one, a really nice integration of the architecture and science. Right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about the science side of it. So you mentioned that we've got passive solar design. So I'm guessing you've got a long edge that's facing north for living spaces. Is there other things that are slightly more active in the building and not purely reliant on the passive elements of the house? Yep, um, a couple of things there. I'll, I'll, can I just address the, the first um, sort of assumption you made, which is that 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 solar passive design does have this long axis, you know, running east-west, so you face north. 
yeah, that's ideal. And if you've got that, then it's a piece of cake. But I would say, you don't have to have that. That's where the great architecture comes in. And my block is the reverse of that. And we've designed eight, eight plus star houses on any orientation block. Um, that's, again, you just got to integrate that architecture and science to do a, a, a clevere design. You know, a long axis east-west, you can do your rectangle, plonk it, a long rectangle. And we do do those occasionally. But um, then back to uh, solar passive, I actually say is really very misleading because to, for a solar passive house to function really well, you actually have to be active. You know, you have to manage things like opening the curtains so the sunshine can come in. It drives me crazy in the, in the neighbouring houses around me in my suburb. A lot of them have got north-facing glass and all winter long they'll have the curtains closed. Um, anyway, so um, actively managing those windows to let that sun in and then closing curtains at night. Again, pretty boring basic stuff. Um, right, so you've got to remember, I guess, if you have one of those houses that even though the house might be called passive, you can't be. You have to remember that you have to get off your bum and interact with your house. <laughs> totally. You've got to sail that ship is an analogy a lot of people say. So we, as part of our process, we really educate our clients about that. And when the house is completed, we actually present them with a homeowner's manual sort of reinforcing those things. Um, and, of course, the other one is summer. It, um so another thing that drives me a bit crazy is that people have all these large expanses of glass and they don't shade it in summer. So they're creating these ovens and really simple thing, you know, a piece of shade cloth from Bunnings can make a massive difference to the performance of a house. Um, but that, the, the summer thing also brings up another nice integration that we like to stress and that's the integration of um, architecture, building architecture and science and landscape architecture and horticulture and science. So we'd like to work with um, uh, good landscape, local landscape specialists to make sure we design gardens that really help the house perform even better. So I guess there's some more passive elements. You can use your deciduous trees and various things, but the people have to do work as well. Including all of these little things that maybe every house doesn't have, does that, that's got to add some cost up front to a building project, doesn't it? Or is that sort of something misleading that we just keep hearing everywhere? Yeah, it's actually a bit misleading. So the way we design and build, and, and this air tightness is probably a really good way to demonstrate this. Um, we do do more airtight building envelopes, but we do that with standard construction. So we do not use a passive house type approach. Um, which involves an internal air barrier membrane and quite a modified form of construction that is more labour intensive and requires an internal services cavity and, and other things. Um, so it adds a significant amount to cost and then the, the, they have very strict requirements about air tightness and thermal bridging. I was a huge fan of Passive House and I learned about it over a decade ago oh. and I actually came back to Australia after training in the US for a little while and thought, ah, oh, I'm going to change Australian construction. Um, but then I realised it was cost prohibitive. You know, we, if we want to make a difference in the Australian housing market, then it has to be accessible, it has to be affordable. So hence, um, we started um, building houses and this is back when my company was called um, Jigsaw Housing. We used to have, can build houses as well. Um, yeah, so we've, we've done over 100 projects now using this approach and our houses, yeah, are, are nowhere near as airtight as passive house houses. They require an air change, um, air changes per hour at test pressure of 0 0.6. 
um, to put. Okay, so what what does that mean, like for the layperson? How what basically would that be? <laughs> pretty much airtight. You're you're absolutely dependent on mechanical ventilation. Otherwise, oh, it's wow. going to get really stuffy and smelly, and you'll get sleepy because of CO two levels. So you have to have mechanical ventilation. Um, our approach, or most Canberra houses, most Australian houses, are around fifteen air changes at, at a test pressure or higher. In my experience in Canberra, I've tested houses that are up to forty. Um, but without, yeah, and oh, yeah, there are plenty of them, sadly. One at Mount Buller I tested was forty air changes. Crazy. Um, but what we aim for is something in between. Again, with standard construction, we've found just with really good detailing, paying attention to putting, uh, reducing the number of penetrations through the, you know, the plasterboard lining of your house, not having lots of down lights, you know, combining a ceiling light and a fan instead of having multiple holes in your ceiling, using LED wall-mounted lighting, really simple stuff, and making sure the electrician and the plumbers know that you don't, not going to let them create a great big hole, um, that you want them to pay attention to that. Anyway, using that simple approach, we can get houses down between three and six air changes per hour. And that, yeah, which is a massive improvement. Um, and in a climate like Canberra's over winter, there's almost a linear relationship between the air leakage rate um, and your winter energy consumption. So we've shown that our houses, or my house for example, uses less energy than a passive house accredited house here in Canberra. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so um, yeah, passive house is one approach. Um, there's a more affordable approach. Um, and I've got a blog about that. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And what's the, is that blog on your, on the Lighthouse yeah, website? Yeah, on the Lighthouse journal page. You'll have to, um, it's an older one, but if you if search for Passive House on the, on the journal, you'll find it. And it, it explains the sort of relationship between Passive House and the Australian developed, you know, CSIRO developed National House Energy Rating Scheme which I think is the most misunderstood and underutilised tool um, in Australian design. It is a really... Oh, really? Yeah, it's a really clever piece of software and it's never been communicated well. And it's tended to be used um, as a, a, a box-ticking exercise at the end of design to you know, meet requirements of six-star minimum. Well, while we've got architects you know, sitting around listening to us, I mean, what's, what's something that you think people can be doing with the, the Nathurst... Um, software to be more effective and, and use it f more fully? Yeah, um, well, collaborate. Collaborate with a local assessor who knows your climate, who knows the software, and do it early on. And, and, and do it on a few projects. Even just doing it on a few projects will be enough for you to learn a lot. As I said, my architects, my architects in my team have learned so much, there's little left for me to do these days. Um, but yeah, engage and collaborate. Um, and test, test things early in the design process. So what if I did swing the house around by 15 degrees or what if I popped the living area out this side and the bedrooms around that corner or increase this window up to the insulation levels or the window performance? It can show you the thermal bang for buck immediately. So it can really help you and it helps your clients um, make informed decisions about how they want to invest their money because there are all sorts of assumptions people can make um, 
again, back to windows, here I go again, um, with my house, um, where we have optimised it for its site and location, the window sizes are great. I've got double glazing. We don't use anything but double glazing in Canberra. But a lot of people would assume, oh, but if, if you'd done triple glazing, it would have been even better. But it's not the case. So my house, if we switch to triple glazing, the overall energy requirements are actually unchanged. The heating or cooling load changes slightly, but the thermal and energy efficiency benefit is actually nil. Yet it would have cost me a lot of money <laughs> to put in triple glazing. So um, yeah, integrating that science can help you design better and save your clients um, money in terms of build cost and running costs. Yeah, I guess that's the thing for any any clients or any people who might be listening who are thinking about using an architect, that architects can actually help clients understand the benefits of upfront cost versus what's going to come later with the ongoing running costs once the once the house is built. Because yes, there will probably be a few items that we might suggest that uh, might be slightly more expensive than what they thought. But if it means that it reduces their bills later down the track, then that's going to be a huge benefit for them. That's right. And that's where in our climate, it's really easy to show people that if I you know, went from double glazing to single glazing, that's a completely different story in, in my house and my climate. And, and we can show that it really is absolutely worth the investment in the double glazing and that the payback period is actually quite small. Yeah. Mm, okay, right. With the impacts of climate change um, getting worse year on year, um, how are your clients uh, perceiving the houses that you've designed for them and are they seeing the benefits that Lighthouse is talking about when you're, when you're designing these homes and specifying these amazing uh, buildings that perform so well? Yeah, the short answer is yes. People come to us um, with, a, you know, they've got a real underlying interest in sustainability and, and often it's, you know, connected to climate change. Um, and, and yes, we do get the results. Um, so, you know, I've stressed again, we use that modelling and with that modelling, we, we are looking at the predicted cooling requirements as well as the heating requirements. So we're ensuring that a house performs well, you know, all year round, because that's critical. You know, you can get six stars and you can create a house that's great in summer and crap in winter or the other way round, but you want it to do well all year round. And we collect data from our houses, not all of them, but a lot of our clients are incredibly enthusiastic about giving us feedback. So they are proudly contacting us going, oh my gosh, it's 41 degrees outside and it's only 25 in here and we haven't had to put anything on. Um, oh, that's fantastic. So you can actually keep up with the house afterwards. I mean, so many architects, you know, we don't have that benefit afterwards once the client's moved in. That's you might right. Hear well, from them you again. guys call it post-occupancy analysis, don't you? Um, so <laughs> yeah. we give every client a net atmo, which is a type of data logger that records um, temperature, uh, humidity, um, sound levels, strangely, so we can tell when our clients are having parties. Um, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe that's it. But anyway, we, we give them one of those and it has an internal and an external sensor and they can track their data and um, watch it online. And um, a lot of them also install um, solar panels and there's groovy software interfaces for that now. So, yeah, our, the type of clients we attract engage in that. So, but we do know they are performing well. Or if, you know, occasionally a client will come back and say, oh, well, this, 
we're finding this room's getting quite hot and invariably I'll, we'll look and we we'll go, well, yeah, that's because that's got that western-facing window we talked about and remember you're going to put external shading or you're waiting for that tree to grow up. And that's where I say, in the meantime, get a bit of shade cloth from Bunnings and bulldog clip it to the gutters. You know, it's not, <laughs> again, it's not rocket science expensive stuff. Maybe that won't look so pretty initially, but it'll do the job until yeah. the trees grow. Um, yeah, so, fantastic. And yeah. I mean, there was, so in terms of the, the wonderful impacts of a well-designed house that performs really well, I guess, in reducing the impact of uh, energy usage and uh, being close to carbon positive um is there other benefits that you've found i mean are you integrating with landscape design you mentioned that before is there something where the building can has been giving back to the landscape or giving back to the environment through your through the lighthouse buildings oh well i think the main thing we give back to the environment really is that our houses have a small footprint you know compared to the the typical australian home um our houses are small so space efficiency i say number one if you're interested in sustainability then make your house smaller. And the way to make a great small house is to integrate architecture. You know, architects, I want to stress, I'm a massive fan of architecture. Science is not the answer to everything at all. Um, The great architecture allows you to have a small footprint, which leaves you with so much more outdoor space. So again, if we use the example of my my own house, it's it's a 405 square metre block. I've got a four bedroom, two bathroom home. My husband works from home. Um, Anyway, it's a good family home, but we have, the house is only 150 square meters. So, and we've got a lovely big Northern deck and we've got a great courtyard out to one side. We've got a small deck out to the other side. Um, a strip, a big strip of garden down, it's only three meters wide, but with good architecture, landscape architecture, a really productive strip of garden. Every window in the house now looks out to greenery. Although I'm in a high density suburb, I've got views to the outdoor. So I want to stress that our houses are not just about thermal performance, they are about quality of life. You know, with thermal performance comes comfort and temperature stability and good indoor air quality, which is all about health. But you need more than that for good mental health. You need functional, beautiful spaces and and honestly, our houses really do give back to the people. And that's the feedback we get all the time is that people love their homes. And I often joke, having um, moved into this house three years ago, I don't go away, not just because I'm really busy and tired, but because being at home is actually really lovely. It is such a nice place to be. Um, mm. So <laughs> did that sort of answer the question? <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's um, that's really rare and it's probably something that people might not be able to articulate in their brief that they'd love their house to be a place to, you know, as respite, recovery, uh, sort of a sanctuary when they get home from work or, or home from a hard day somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic that you're getting that feedback from your clients. If there's one thing that you could say to all the architects listening uh, today, what would you what would you like to say to them? Uh, show people your work, um, engage with your clients and, and if you get the opportunity, open up 
your projects to let people come in and see them because you've got to realize that most people in the mass market their only opportunity to see houses are project homes in display villages and they can be soul destroying um, they don't get to visit well designed architect designed homes um, sadly a lot of that is because they tend to be high-end more expensive houses we want architecture to be accessible to the mass market so one of the things that we are really passionate about at lighthouse is um, opening our home so not just my home a lot of our clients are really happy to open up for events like Sustainable House Day um, by Renew, Renew uh, and Solar House Day by the Institute and then here in Canberra we have another event called the Design Canberra Festival um, which we participate in every year. So my house alone has had a thousand, over a thousand visitors in its first three years but a lot of our clients oh, wow. are, are willing to do that because they realise that you know until you um, can see it, uh, feel it and experience it you, you often can't get it. Most of us have lived in crappy houses. We don't realise that it can be so much better. So keep up the good work, everyone. <laughs> That's such a really, really good point because I guess so much of talking about environmentally sustainable design or regenerative design is that so much of it can be conceptual. So actually getting there to experience it is so much more than trying to envision it when someone's describing it to you. Um, all right, well, Jenny, well, thank you so much for being involved in the podcast. It's been great talking to you. And if anyone would like to see the work that you've been doing and the rest of your team, they should jump onto the Lighthouse Architecture and Science website, I assume. Absolutely. That'd be great. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. The worst effects of climate change in Australia can be clearly seen in locations with the most extreme temperatures. In the Australian tropics, architecture firm Tropo has been designing beautiful buildings to suit their climate for the past 40 years. This meant reintroducing lightweight houses oriented towards the prevailing breezes, long thin floor plans that allowed the air to move through the building, and large roofs that shade all walls and openings. But over the years, more buildings, including government-funded buildings, have favoured heavy masonry materials and mechanical air conditioning systems to cool them. Joe, thanks for joining us. When it comes to designing for climate, um, should we be writing off concrete and masonry? I mean, I mean, what are the worst materials to use? Um, yeah, no, any material can can be of use, of course, if it's used in, in the correct way for its location. And as you've mentioned, you know, Tropo work in a lot of different um, environmental um, regions and that response needs to be specific to each of those individually. Um, and, and right down to kind of individual sites and the microclimate that they might have. Um, in this particular location in Darwin, the um, you know the, the the climatic conditions on the coast are very different to those sort of down the track 30 kilometers in Humpty Doo so you know you need to be quite um, well sort of um, versed in, in in what those specific environmental um, microclimates are so in terms of the materials question um, I guess when we're talking about responding to climate and trying to produce uh, thermal comfort through design as opposed to mechanical conditioning. You're trying in the tropics, what I'm talking here, to reduce the heat gain. So masonry can work in your favour if it's well shaded or completely shaded, doesn't get any kind of solar access and it, in that sense it can store cool, 
Um, but what you need is an outer skin that is porous and breathable and can cool quickly in the evening. The problem with concrete block, which has become kind of the standard housing um, product these days, is that um, if, if you've got a block wall that's kind of getting solar um, exposure all day, we know that the heat lag for that material is about eight hours. So by the time it's time to go to bed, that block is starting to release that heat and people find that it's hotter inside their buildings than it is outside when it's nice and cool. So there's a real problem with um, just those basic principles not being applied. And we see this particularly in public housing and housing in Aboriginal communities where there isn't a you know reliable energy source or people sometimes are unable to pay their power bills and um, then the power gets cut off entirely so they're stuck in uh, you know a, a building that's hotter inside than outside and they can't even turn on the most basic cooling um, mechanism the ceiling fan anymore so it's um, it's a bit of a I guess it's that we're constantly chasing our tail in this kind of generic design approach that doesn't um, make any specific sort of response to to those specific climate conditions. Mm, yeah, right. And I mean, it was interesting that you were saying that you know in indigenous communities that they might not have any access to well considered designed uh, buildings so that they can actually escape some of the harshest microclimates that we have in Australia. Uh, but you've actually done some work in, in the Galawinku Remote Community Housing Project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project and how you actually used regenerative or sustainable design thinking in that project? Um, yeah, we've done a lot of work across um, a lot of Australia, I guess specifically in the Northern Territory is my experience. Um, the, the Galawinku house was a really interesting one because it was a much broader program than simply you know, whacking some houses down in an Aboriginal community. It started with an extensive consultation process where individual tenants and their families were, um, you know, spent time with the architects to discuss exactly what their needs were, how many people might be living in the house. And that's a seasonal and culturally nuanced um, number that changes all year round. Um, but but people have responsibility and it may be that there will be 20 people staying, 30 people even staying on a property at any given time. Um, so how do you how do you allow a house to be able to perform its most basic sort of needs of shelter, but also you know, allow to um, become a, a meeting place and a gathering place for those um, for those special times. Mm. So I guess a huge part of this is, you know, that, that the community consultation part of this is really honing in on that people live differently in different cultures and it includes Australian culture that we might not be well-versed in. You know, we have to actually talk to these people. Absolutely. And, and there are just so many layers of cultural obligations that people have in communities in terms of avoidance laws and you know how you know different members of the family can um, relate to each other physically you know there, there may be sort of certain relationships where you know one family member can't even look at another family member it's a really um, important um, element of how does how house design needs to allow what is the oldest living culture on the planet to continue to 
survive in its current form. Um, I, I guess in terms of uh, um, basic housing and shelter perspective, one of the things that's really clear in all of the work and, and unfortunately is completely lost in the current sort of approach of um, government provided Aboriginal housing is this need for well designed outdoor spaces. And it's a simple kind of answer to a lot of issues because it's, you know, a veranda is cheaper to build than an internal space, is cheaper to build than an internal space that requires an air conditioner to be comfortable. Um, so it, it's got an affordability big tick um, to it, but it also provides, you know, a surveillance opportunity for people to be able to sit out and see what's kind of happening on the street. It also provides that shelter and shade to that external wall or opening that we were talking about earlier. So, you know, it's the lack of this kind of opportunity for good outdoor spaces in housing, I think is a really simple error that um, needs to sort of quickly be corrected. And you, and you see in communities regularly people kind of building their own makeshift shade structures that are from traditional techniques of um, using um, sometimes ironwood leaves for the shade on the top with just a simple, simple post and beam sort of timber structure. Um, others that kind of are more of a lean-to type structure that actually uh, helps to shade um, walls like we were discussing before and in some cases you know just providing shelter from the weather for where a washing machine is supposed to sit outside but where the drip line of the designed house falls directly on the washing machine and so people's washing machines are being destroyed so it's just it's just oh, little simple things like that that you kind of go how did this ever get approved you know <laughs> yeah definitely so I mean it sounds like along with the social sustainability element of, of the design. I mean, there are so many other small and simple passive design ideas that we need to make sure that we incorporate in these buildings just with a little bit more consideration when we're actually designing them. And it sounds like you're you're doing them. So in the in the Galawinku project, uh, not only did you allow for these great social spaces where people can uh, see each other and there can be all the different uh, social elements that are allowed for, but then also the building functions in in the actual landscape that it's built in. Yeah, and you know, there's that that particular project um it's got to be pushing sort of 20 years old now um, and we've done some other work out there since and um, Galawinku went through two very big cyclones in a single season um, a few years ago and and a lot of housing stock was destroyed in that that was old and uncoded um, and and there was obviously a lot of people that were um, immediately homeless so um, the program to sort of rehouse some of those uh, to, to rehouse those people has been an ongoing one um, and when we went out there to um, more recently the the whole the houses from the old housing project um, are, are all still there apart from one that burnt down um, and loved dearly you know and people are kind of like why why are we getting these you know block houses now these buildings work so much better and they they break all the rules in terms of what current sort of um, scheduling and specifications are for these houses they're, they're lightweight they've got glass louvers you know most of which are all still the original louvers um, they've got big verandas they've got outdoor kitchens they've they've they're really um, they're really well loved in the community which is great to see and I think a testament to the fact that it 
you don't need an aircon, eh? And and good sort of design has longevity in it, and longevity equals sustainability because if we continue to design and build houses that are engineered to fail, then how does that in any way tick a sustainability box? Absolutely. So I guess that's that's a huge part of it is it needs to be something that can be affordable, that can also you know be built easily, uh, can withstand the changes that's happening to the climate at the moment, but then also something that the people are going to love to live in once they're actually in there. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a huge, huge other box that you've ticked. The other big one is the, the maintenance thing. So, you know, there's this continued lie that is pandered in um, departments of housing around the country that Aboriginal people destroy homes, and this is a well-documented fact. Um, you know, this is not the case. <laughs> the, any maintenance that's done on a public housing building in this country is documented and needs to be, um, you know, accounted for. And when you go through that, there is no greater rate of destruction of houses by Aboriginal people than there is of any other person in this country. And what is happening, though, is... Um, you know, just a casual scrutiny, uh, I think, is the perfect description of out of sight, out of mind in terms of quality of building, quality of servicing, and a zero maintenance program. So instead of buildings that um, are more appropriate for culture, climate, and, and environment, they're, um, you know, built from materials that are considered to be indestructible um, and so therefore no maintenance is required um, and apparently that's a better option. And I guess what's interesting about that original Galawinku project was it wasn't just about the houses, there was also a training opportunity for people in the community and there were a bunch of guys who got their Cert for and building on that project who then continued to maintain those buildings and be employed for a long time afterwards, some of whom are still doing that today. So, you know, it's, oh, it's, wow. <laughs> simp it's a much bigger concept and, and um, you know, asset to the community than just a building. And it needs to be thought of in this much broader context. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so many people just think about maybe the design side than the construction side. But after a building's finished, we have to think about 40 to maybe even 100 years of extra work that's going to go into that building. <laughs> so that's a huge, huge portion of it. Mm. Again, design and material choice can limit what that maintenance is. But if you've got a strategy of zero maintenance, which is what the Northern Territory Department of Housing has, it seems, um, then which which you know is a legal right of every single person in this country. Uh, then you know how are you ever going to be able to come up with any kind of innovative response to specific community um, and and tenant needs? Mm. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's just a fundamental human right. I think that uh, we need to make sure that we're allowing for in any, any of these sorts of any housing, not just community housing, but well, especially community housing. Though the other question that I wanted to ask is that you've been in the Northern Territory now for sixteen years, and because you're designing to to suit climate, have you actually seen some changes due to climate change? Uh, look, definitely, and I guess. Um before I came to the Territory, actually probably when I first arrived here, it was something like 11 days over 35 degrees that we had in the in, in Darwin. 
Um, and 35 probably doesn't sound too high to anyone down south when um, you can get to temperatures like 45 quite easily. But when you add 98% humidity to that, the, you know, the thermal comfort probably sits somewhere around about 55 degrees. So, you know, the, the, the um, humidity is, I guess, our, um, the, our most difficult sort of um, oppressive climatic um, characteristic that we need to respond to. Um, but I guess the projected outlook for temperature in the in the top end is something like 114 days over 35 and when you start talking about those sorts of you know prolonged hot spells that are going to be accompanied by high humidity then you know we really do need to start sort of thinking different well not differently but like I guess how do we adapt to this in a way that isn't going to just create a bigger sort of draw on power and that is, you know, not being offset with renewables, which are the uptake of which aren't so great in the Territory. Um, we're getting better. Um, but, you know, I think there's a easy kind of response from developers and... and um, you know, housing providers, it's like, we'll just put another aircon on. And it's like, well, hang on, wait a minute. Maybe this is an opportunity to look more broadly at our urban design and, and, and our sort of larger scale sort of approach to building cities. Um, there was recently a fantastic study that was done up here on the heat island effect in Darwin. And, um, you know, just seeing the amount of bitumen that is in our city centre, the amount of heat that that creates and the lack of green and the lack of shade um, it's it's glaringly obvious that this needs to be an urban approach and that's sort of in the city but also in the suburbs you know to try and uh, get people out of their cars by providing good shaded streets is an essential part of that and I guess in within people's own um, you know suburban block or wherever they might live to start to reduce those you know, heat sinks like big concrete driveways that people get out and wash down with a hose every morning and things like that. Um, and and we like even I can grow a plant in the territory. So um, you know, gardens are an essential element to all housing here. And you know, it's so easy, and you just can kind of throw a few seeds in the ground and watch it grow. It's it, that um, idea of using what occurs here naturally to your advantage is a really quite a simple thing and and you know like I'm sitting at the moment in our conference room which is outside in the garden of our office like you don't need to kind of be constantly pushing inside I acknowledge that there are some people who um, you know need to be in those kind of cold um, mechanically controlled environments who, you know, maybe are unwell and can't cope with the temperatures that are here. Um, and and that's that's going to be a necessity in sort of work and, and home um, at home. But, you know, there's ways that you can air condition that are a much more um, sustainable approach in terms of zoning sp specific rooms and spaces within the building so that you're not kind of 
got this sort of generic idea of cooling an entire space, you know, like you just mm. need to cool your body. Yeah, that's right. And it seems like it's trying to make that balance of uh, what the person's uh, needs are going to be, how to balance out thermal mass, which is going to be charging up like a thermal battery um, if the heat is getting to it, where the insulation can be effective. And then, like you say, you know, certain materials could be used as wind breaks or solar breaks if you can, uh, so you can shade or get wind through to, to passively cool these places down. But it all sort of comes back to, as you were saying, the type of people who live in those places so that if if they really, really have to have this sort of, you know, maintained 19 degree internal temperature, uh, then maybe they need to have go, you know, go towards something that's a little bit more like passive house. All right, Joe. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been wonderful watching all of Tropo's work. So thank you so much, Joe. No worries at all. This has been the second episode of Season 2 of Hearing Architecture. Thanks so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Caroline Pidcock, Jenny Edwards and Joe Best, for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this episode were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Vaughan Cockburn and James Goffwin. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.